and welcome back to the second part of the conversation I'm having with uh, Adam uh, from the RetroTube podcast. Um, we're discussing all things goons with particular reference to the Series 8 show, The Man Who Never Was. I guess you wouldn't have really, because you'd not heard all the goon shows or all that, you know, did, was Michael Benteen anything to you? Did you sort of... No, that, that's it. I think he was sort of like the Pete Best character in a way that like he was from a, a different part of it that I had no experience of and I wasn't super interested in because I liked the bit that I was interested in and so yeah I wasn't that curious about him he was I was almost slightly irritated about his presence because he made it untidy <laughs> sort of like my my internal neatness I like to have things sort of okay right the goons are these uh, three guys, and they did all this, these. I mean, it's not even like Zeppo Marx, because at least you can go back and enjoy. And in fact, there's the the Marx Brothers films with Zeppo in are my favourite ones. So it's it's not even that kind of situation where it got better after Zeppo left. And the core three are the ones we really, really remember. It it is more of a Pete Best sort of thing. Of like, there isn't that neatness of Ringo having always been there. It's just a slight hair in the mouth kind of thing <laughs> so you won't have seen the uh, 1952 film down among the Z men oh i think i did see it and i was quite disappointed yeah because um i really liked the case of the mechanese battle horn yes that's good and i howled the first time i saw that i saw one of the funniest so some of the gags in that uh and again probably worth its own episode <laughs> so i don't want to go through the gags too much in that but there's a few episodes a few gags which I thought were just some of the funniest things ever. So I expected it to be another Muckinese battle horn. And... Yeah, it, the the goons on film have been pretty patchy. Um, mm. So down among the Z men, I've probably only seen twice. And I'm talking, you know, when I was obsessed. Wow. Uh, I I would have normally have watched something over and over until, you know, until the tape broke. I'd have watched something, yeah. but I think I probably bought the tape, got the video, and watched it twice because it's more or less just a um, cash in. British quote comedy film low budget yeah. um, where the cast get to do their sort of bit there's no real goon humor it yes I think that was that was what did it for me it felt very dated it didn't feel like I was getting the goons it just felt like a, an old 50s film yeah it was very dated and there was like there was there was like I think dance the dance sequences with the Tiller girls Oh crikey! Who, I'm not sure if Betty Boothroyd was one of them, but um, <laughs> but the, there was like dance sequences. Benteen did his back of a, a broken chair back um, act. Oh, I've heard of the chair routine. It's one of the things that Benteen's chair routine. It's like I, it, it's one of those things you hear about as a Goon Show fan. You read in the Goon the GSPS newsletters and never quite curious and <laughs> curious enough to find out what that entailed. So oh, it's a man with a chair routine. Okay, yeah, I'm sure it was fine. You know, um, the difference between humorists and comedians. <laughs> humorists are funny men that you don't laugh at, basically. <laughs> they're, 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 yeah. they're wry. It's probably blasphemy, but this is my relationship with uh, Dr. Jonathan Miller. Yes, I'm with you there. Much as I love Pete and Dad, and I'll laugh at um, Alan Bennett, Dr. Jonathan Miller, I've just, yeah... <laughs> Um, I'm more of a Derek and Clive fan, actually. <laughs> I don't know if you've heard any Derek and Clive, have you? I have, yes. <laughs> They're quite a thing. Yes. How's your mother? Call me mother. Well, living. Well, I, well it's, it's a sort of life, you know, an existence. Yeah. I went to see her uh, last Wednesday afternoon. Yeah. Took around some Jaffa cakes. Yeah. And no, did you take her around some Jaffa cakes? I mean, did you have Jaffa cakes uh, left in the road, which you sort of did a slalom round, or no, no? Did I you take her some Jaffa I cakes, which you shoved in her gob? I shoved them in her gob. Oh, good. Right. Yeah. As long as you weren't taking her around Jaffa cakes. <laughs> no, no, no. I wouldn't. No, I wouldn't do that because she doesn't enjoy that as much. No, she hates it. <laughs> yeah. Um. And I love Alan Bennett, but yeah, no, Jonathan Miller. Um. Too clever for his own good. It's certainly too clever for my good. I couldn't. <laughs> I just couldn't. <laughs> um, but no, but, but Benteen always struck me as being that kind of comedian that, you know, on the face of it, amusing, but not particularly mm. laugh out loud funny. And I've heard he had a radio. I never saw any of the, well, I never obviously never saw them at the time, but I've not seen any videos or 
watched any sort of YouTube videos of It's a Square World or Potty Time or any of those TV no, shows he did. Um, I listened to uh, his, he had a radio series in the 80s, which I quite liked, like sketch show thing, where he did all the voices. Um, but apart from that, and I also knew him chiefly when I was a kid, because he he came over to New Zealand to, to film a kid's uh, a dramatization of a for TV of a, a kid's graphic novel okay. called, called Terry and the Gunrunners, which was about this kid called Terry who falls afoul of some gunrunners, basically. And um, Benting oh, yeah. Benting played the chief villain who wore like a fedora hat and cigar and all that carry on, you know, mm. um, camping it up massively so i knew him from that but that was that was it really but yeah now going back to the, the film so yeah muckinese battlehorn absolutely i watched that with friends just a year ago Rewatched it just a year ago uh it's got dick emery in it still holds up more or less it does yeah best transfer of, of goon humor to film i think i think so yeah i've not seen the dick lester directed like, like a show called fred and idiot weekly which were the tv okay. shows um that they made in 56 57 oh no i haven't seen those i just i like running jumping standing still film yeah that's okay that's okay um yeah i think they won an oscar it was up for an oscar at least did it win an oscar really? for best short uh, film or something something like that um and then of course they made the tele the tele goons in the yes. 60s which is just you just horrifying <laughs> It was. I think the problem with that kind of thing, and a, a note that I made actually, um, because I watched this on YouTube, the or I listened to it via YouTube to re- refresh myself of this episode, and the, the this particular YouTube version has a lot of um, of the album covers, the sleeves of you know the various releases, and there's a lot of kind of cartoon versions of what the goons characters look like, or these quite grotesque paintings. And then you get the the puppets, and I think I don't really like that because I think they they live in your imagination. And if you have a picture of what Eccles or Blue Bottle look like in front of you, and even if they're ones that have been done by Spike Milligan or Peter Sellers, both of who drew their characters, um, it takes something away from it. I think, and so particularly, yeah, particularly a puppet show with the whole like it's so vibrant and it's so anarchic and manic when it's in your head and when you're imagining the action that these characters are doing and then when it's these sort of sub super marionation things <laughs> like clunkily working their way through this early 60s black and white soup of a tv picture that it, it doesn't it doesn't work in the same way yeah i i in my in my head i don't know if i ever visualized what i thought they looked like before seeing how the you know Milligan and Sellers mm. drew them or or the telegoons in my head I don't know if how I visualized them to look each character although I'm pretty certain that I had in my head that um grip pipe thin would look a bit like uh Christopher Lee oh yeah that makes sense I I can get that yeah blue bottle though I never pictured him as that schoolboy no I never did I kind of would think of him almost like a peter Laurie kind of oh yes often when he was in cartoon or depicted in cartoons he'd have that kind of voice wouldn't he yeah it's it's a show that really doesn't benefit from visualization not at all no the, the whole point is almost i almost feel like dr strangelove himself is like the whole point is lost <laughs> of like this show that works with the imagination the whole point of it is lost if you transfer it to television the whole point of it is a, is a radio thing and you can do all these gags and things by the medium of sound and suggestion and narration and that kind of thing. If you're looking at it, it doesn't work. Going back to The Man Who Never Was, there was a few sort of little topical references in there. They mentioned Davy. Now, did you pick up on that? No, I didn't. Oh, It rings a bell, but yeah, I wouldn't have known what that was a reference to, I don't think. Well, so... I mean, at the time I got it and, uh, and I was, you know, you're proud of yourself for getting something that, that you think is like an in-joke. Yes. Um, so Davey was actually, um, so in, in the show, I think Milligan just basically sort of garbles into the microphone. Don't forget Davey. It's a good film. 
Uh-huh. Oh yes, yeah, I know. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and Davy sort of came out in uh, the, the the month before this show went out, and it was the last uh, Ealing comedy, and it starred uh, Mr. Harry Seacom. Oh wow, a, a plug. Hmm. Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, and it was about now. I have seen it, but I'm talking thirty years ago, and I saw it once, and and, and that was it. <laughs> um, uh, I obviously wasn't that impressed by it, but it, I think it, it, my memory is it was about a an entertainer, a singer uh, who um, decides to try and make it big, and I don't know whether he achieved it or not. Probably not. But uh, yeah, so it was it was a, it was a Seacom vehicle, and I was just doing a little bit of research and and I, and looking on um, as you do IMDb, and I'm not sure about this whether it's true. And then I cross reference it with Wikipedia, and apparently it is true. There was a, a young actor in Davy called called Peter Frampton. Huh. Okay. So immediately I thought, oh, all right, Peter Frampton. All right, okay, I know about Peter Frampton, um, hmm. but no, not that one. Oh really? Okay. It was. It's not that. I was gonna say. Oh, it's not that all members of Humble Pie were child actors. <laughs> oh, because uh, <laughs> Steve Marriott. Steve Marriott was in films in the sixties, early sixties. Yeah. Uh, he, actually, yes, he was. Because I covered one with um, some friends of mine on a podcast. He was in a. Uh, Steve Marriott was in a film called um, Be My Guest in '65 with David Hemmings. Yeah, is that the one with Hines in it, where he's, Steve Marriott's playing the drums? It was that. It was the follow-up to that. Right, that was, that was called um, "Give It Up" or something. <laughs> they have such generic titles, don't they? These films, up and down, in and out, in and out, up and down, over and under. But I, I watched the the, the follow up film, um, which was basically just an excuse for them to shoehorn in a load of pop acts to do right for the song. But no, anyway, uh, Peter. No, this this the Davy the Davy film had this young actor called Peter Frampton whose father was apparently a makeup artist on the film. And he then, young Peter, went on to become a uh, major makeup artist and actually won an Oscar for wow. his work on Braveheart. So okay. so you see those pictures of um, Mel with his blue face. That, yeah. That's probably Peter Frampton. <laughs> He's coming alive. Yes. <laughs> so, yeah, so there was a little plug for Davey. Now, the other thing is, about this episode there's another major kind of goons connection with the man who never was do you know what that is i probably don't i'm not familiar that much with the film i've never seen the actual film that it comes from okay so the the series six version of of the man who never was actually went out a month before the film was released in in 1956 Uh now i don't know whether it was conscious or unconscious because they knew it was coming out but but peter sellers featured in The Man Who Never Was. Huh. Um, voice only, okay, but quite quite famously, he did the voice of Churchill. There's a scene where you don't see Churchill. Uh, I've seen the film a couple of times. I, th- I think there's like a, a door that's ajar and Churchill's supposedly, you know, in the room. You don't actually see him, but you hear this voice and it's, it's Sellers doing the voice. Um, and he also does uh, various other voices in the film, like there's an airfield instructor talking over a tannoy. And it's it's one of those voices that Sellers would do, those kind of officious voices of authority, you know. Yeah. And, um, also, and also, I think he did a cabbie. Um, I'd like to say he did it as um, William Mate, you know, that the, 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 the cockney. <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh, I nearly, did, I nearly did the voice. I had to restrain myself. <laughs> I nearly got my second strike. <laughs> <laughs> But um, no, the film, the film's really good, actually, because it's one of those. Do you ever have that? Do you ever watch films where you watch a film the first time and you kind of think, oh, that was all right. And then a couple of years later, you watch it again and actually think, actually, this is great. Yeah, I know what you mean. Yeah, occasionally. I'm reminded as well, you're telling me that is it reminds me a bit of St- uh, Peter Serafinowicz doing his his Darth Vader spoofs and that kind of thing, but also providing a minor voiceover in a Star Wars film. It's a similar sort of thing. Yes, absolutely. No, so the the film had, which might interest you, it had Clifton. Well, not not this bit, but Clifton Webb was the, the main lead. Um, Gloria Graham, who was the um, the good time girl, would you call her from It's a Wonderful Life, and a very key key actor in the film, although it was a, a pretty small role. Um, the guy who played her fiance, who actually dies. Okay, spoilers. 
<laughs> Spoilers just went whizzing past there. Yeah. Um, the the actor that played her her fiance was William Russell. Ah, okay. For anyone who doesn't know, is uh, Doctor Who's first companion Ian. That's right. Yeah, the the very heroic Ian. Because you're you're obviously a, a Doctor Who fan. I, I I wouldn't want to oversell the people. People know more about it than I do, but I en- I enjoy their Doctor Who. Yes. Yeah. So I I, I without going too too much off topic I, I never saw an entire episode of any doctor who ever wow that's quite good going particularly for somebody particularly somebody of our age as well yeah i may have watched the tom baker episode when i was back in the day i think i watched canine actually i remember watching canine i like canine the the, t- the tv spin-off Oh yes, which which uh, ironically I've never seen. <laughs> right, um, but I, I I never I never really got into the to the Gucci. Never really got into Doctor Who at all. <laughs> and then a friend of mine um, <clears throat> persuaded me to uh, uh, watch only series two, so the um, the Hartnell era, the the existing episodes. Uh, he didn't show me the uh, the shows that don't exist anymore because. Um, if, if he had access to those, he'd be living in a solid gold house, I think. <laughs> <laughs> but no, he he sort of introduced me to he he sort of insisted that I uh, I watch these because he he believes it is um, the purest who, <laughs> if you like. So yeah, so I I became very familiar with uh, William Russell off the back of that. So mm-hmm. with with regards to the show itself, I mean, were there any sort of standout scenes, characters? Yeah, I sort of had to restrain myself from writing down all the good gags because they came so thick and fast. I mean, it really is like a, a cascade of of jokes on top of jokes on top of jokes, most of which land really well. So I've made it, I, I noted down a few, but I yes, I had to restrain myself from just writing down all of the great gags and not least because if anyone is curious about The Goon Show, uh, The Man Who Never Was is a great place to start because it is just so dense. Uh, one of the things I really sort of in, find interesting about the goon shows generally, and which I think is a bit counterintuitive, and I think people lean too heavily into these days, is the the fact that I love the references that I don't get. I found it quite evocative hearing people talking about three shillings and sixpence and not really ha- having any idea what that entails, or all the they're they're laugh. The audience are laughing at some topical reference, and I have no idea what that might be, but I rather enjoy that yeah i mean there's, I there's, think... even today i there's a there's a line early on in the show where they mention robert atkins yes i looked him up yeah well yeah today is the first time i've actually bothered to look him up i've heard that show so many times and the <laughs> name the name is so familiar to me because of that show yes robert atkins 1886 to 1972 which is a fascinating time span because it feels like 1972 is quite recent and 1886 is just impossibly distant it's like that's actual history that's you know deep into the victorian era and he was alive until 1972 and he founded the regent's park open air theater yes and he was a, he was a member of the um bear bomb tree bear bum tree as i would have called it <laughs> uh company um but yeah absolutely there's there's the the, the references that you don't get sometimes are more intriguing aren't they yeah so you might not get the laugh but you'll get it will be evocative and it will be interesting and i think i think people can lean too heavily now in this idea that oh children won't get this you know young people won't get this we won't bother introducing them to it because they 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 only understand this certain things here but i actually i think people are curious and younger people are curious and it doesn't there's so many people now so many teenagers and younger people you know love the beatles and they love queen and fleetwood mac and all that kind of thing and they're not gonna you know they're not gonna know all the things that are mentioned in beatles songs and you know they might you know monty python is still really popular with younger people and there's so much in that that is 70s references that it's just like who's who's um gerald it's not gerald maudling what's the guy's name that's all reginald maudling it was always like I have no idea who Reginald Maudlin is, but it's just funny. He's just sort of part of the Monty Python universe. You sort of he he's gone from being a real person into just this character. 
Yeah, if the if and again, I hate to sound. I'm going to sound like um, some reactionary old uh, colonel here, um, thundering against modern television. Um, yeah. But if Python was being made today, and they were going to do try and do the summarized Proust sketch, hmm. you just know that the the sort of uh, television commissioners or producers would say, "Well, nobody knows who Proust. Nobody would know who Proust is." which would have been the same probably back in 1972, 73. Mm. Um, but they went ahead and did it. And yeah, I didn't know who Proust was when I saw that sketch, but I no. sure as hell did it after because, I, you know, I look, looked him up. Um, yeah. Can't say I, I actually read any of his books, but, you know. <laughs> I think often it's a self-fulfilling prophecy that that this idea that, oh, young people don't, well, you know, won't listen to that, young people won't listen to that this you know if they don't get the reference they'll turn off but i think it's often the people who are saying that make it come true by not allowing younger people to then be introduced to these things so it's like a closed loop of just the the gatekeeper saying young people won't understand it therefore they shan't hear it and we'll just keep them enclosed in their bubble and then complain about the fact that they're just enclosed in a bubble and never <laughs> never get into older things because we won't let them hear it or see it that kind of thing because like on BBC they used to show particularly BBC Two old black and white films all the time in the eighties, and I think they don't show them anymore because no one's going to watch them, and no one watches them because they don't show them. So it's like it's a, a self fulfilling prophecy. Well, that's right, and there's 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 our generation of of people who grew up watching um, Laurel and Hardy shorts on mm. TV in the eighties who grew to love Laurel and Hardy off the back of that. I think so, yeah. And the old sixties, hooray for Harold Lloyd. Yeah, he, he it was clearly from a some dis, dim and distant past era. But yeah, again, it's a sort of a gatekeeper thing. It's like children must only experience modern things because they won't like it otherwise. But actually, if you just give them the choice, they'll just enjoy what's enjoyable. And they might register it's old, but if it's enjoyable, they'll watch it and enjoy it. The thing is, though, I think it, to some degree, to some extent, this is all. It's it's been. It's been like this forever, in the sense mm-hmm. that there's that famous story of when the the goons were trying to sort of get off the ground, and BBC executives were sort of digging their heels in and saying, "Well, what sort of a name is goons? Nobody's going to know what a goon is." Mm. What is this go on show? Famously, yes, but but I don't know who it was. Was it Milligan? Was it one of the producers that said, "Well, who are take it from here." It's that kind of blinkered uh, thinking that stymies any sort of creativity. Yes, I think so. And as somebody who is a writer as well, has, has attempted and is still attempting script writing, I've definitely come across this this thing that of just over-questioning things and over-second-guessing what audiences are going to think and how audiences will react to something they haven't encountered before or might not understand. And there's a world of difference between somebody being turned off by something that they don't understand and somebody being curious about something they don't understand and wanting to sort of discover more. And the, yeah, I've definitely encountered that a lot of just over, over worrying about that sort of thing. Well, the other thing is until I started listening to these shows when I was 14, I grew up in a very small town. I was pretty bright and I, I liked reading, but I can't say that I knew a lot about the world in terms of mm. <laughs> history or anything like that. I knew the basics, yeah. of course, but but one of the things that, um, one of the sort of byproducts of getting into the Goon Show was sporadically, my father would drive to the big city, <laughs> Christchurch, which is about three hours drive from, right. from where I lived. So occasionally he would go there for a stay overnight for business or whatever, and I'd go with him. And what I would do is I would spend the day trawling through secondhand bookshops or uh, record shops in Christchurch. Mm. And, and at the time there were a lot and I'd turn up some gold in terms of, I'd be looking for anything related to the goons. I'd, um, I'd turn up books, you know, biographies of Milligan or Seekham or Sellers. I'd turn up all sorts of stuff, you know, even, even stuff mm. that was, was more about sort of British comedy in general from the period or, or whatever it may be. But I'd, I'd read a lot of the, uh, I read Milligan's war memoirs as a result. I read the biographies and obviously all three of them, well, four of them, if you include Benteen, all four of them obviously were in the, in the war. And off the back of that, I learned so much about the second world war and, yes. and everything surrounding that. And I learned so much about post-war England, post-war London. And 
it just increased my knowledge you know on so many levels yeah i think so they cover so many subjects as well just even in the goon shows themselves you you get the the french foreign legion episode or you'll get the ancient egypt episode or you'll get the the, the spoof of 1984 or that kind of thing so it, it will sort of and i probably would never have heard of the film the man who never was specifically if there wasn't a goon show also called that that was about it and that kind of thing and so they they sort of all these each episode is can be like a little education even if it's not actually telling you anything useful or actual about the event it's just making you aware of it or keeping it in your mind or that sort of thing so was it like um was the, was the show sort of like a, a gateway uh, did you use it as a as a way of discovering other stuff that's a good question i don't know if i did particularly because i was already a monty python fan at the time and i was already a beatles fan at the time so they're probably two of the main offshoots that you get outside of the actual things that milligan and sellers did themselves we rented as a family in the late 80s we rent uh, we rented uh, life of brian and spike milligan's in that very briefly so it was almost like a reverse thing. So rather than discovering Python through the goons, it was, oh, it's Spike Milligan, who was in the Python film that I watched, and then discovering that they were really influenced by him as well. I was never into Python, so I got into Python off the back of the goons. Right, that's the the correct way of doing it. So you've got the, the, the proper evolution. Well, because I don't even know if... I knew who John Cleese was in 1988, for obvious reasons. I knew Fawlty Towers. Yeah, he, he was like the, the big star, wasn't he? Yeah, and actually around that time, Fish Called Wanda came out, so for sure. But but I, I knew I knew him. I don't think I knew who Michael Palin was. Okay. I was kind of quite, I was I was quite ignorant in many ways. Um, but, but Python wasn't a big, when I was a kid anyway, or at least in my sort of orbit, um, Python wasn't really talked about in the in the 80s early 80s mid 80s um so i i I kind of had heard of monty python but i didn't really know if if you'd asked me then you know tell me about monty python i'd have probably sort of said oh um uh it's john cleese john john cleese and some other people i think that's why yeah when i first came to python it was john cleese and a random group of men who i couldn't tell apart for a while yeah, and then a friend of mine uh, rented um, Holy Grail, so uh, I watched Holy Grail, and I was re- I just got into the Goons at that point, so I was kind of um, I was I was really receptive to, to that kind of humor. So he he we watched Holy Grail. And I think we must have watched it sort of on a loop for about three or four times. We just absolutely lapped it up, and it was about sort of eighty nine, I think, that TVNZ started repeating for the first time since it went out. I think. Um, Flying Circus. Right. Taped them all. And yeah, I really enjoyed it. I didn't enjoy it as much as The Goon Show. Uh, I remember I remember thinking it was very hit and miss. And at that time, I was fairly uncritical of The Goons, <laughs> even though now I can look back and think, well, there was a lot that there was a lot of misses as well as hits. Yeah. Um, but I found that I'd say probably 50% of, of Monty Python's Flying Circus through my eyes in 1989, I was kind of like, Mm, a bit indifferent about hmm. i've subsequently sort of because you know you you're kind of going back to what we said before i i kind of learned to appreciate it more as i got older yes uh but certainly it's a rolling it's an evolution i think so that, that there will be echoes of the goons even if it's people writing comedy now that haven't necessarily listened to goon show episodes but they'll have seen monty python almost definitely which you know both the Goons and Spike Milligan's Q series. Um, and it's possibly for a, a subject for a whole different podcast episode, uh, j- just the influence that Spike Milligan has had in film and music and all sorts of you know literature as well, like his, his comedy books that he's written and his poems. And so he's so prolific in all the things that he's done. So I think it, it's even beyond the Goon shows, like the core thing he's, he himself has done so much and contributed so much to society. And uh, if we talk about Dr. Strangelove at some point, there's one specific thing in there that uh, I like to mention, but that's, that'll be for another 
day because we could just we could just talk about the whole goon experience in one episode which might be counterproductive but i think i i think yeah i think um it, it, there's an inevitable just evolution in the same way that like people who might not might not have seen marx brothers films will still have characters that are a bit like Groucho Marx just because of that evolution and the, the waves and the echoes coming down through other comedy. Uh, I watched a bit of um, MASH recently and hadn't realised how much Alan Alda is doing Groucho Marx. Obviously he would be familiar with it, so that's not a, you know, that's not a evolution thing. He would be very familiar with Groucho Marx, but having not seen it, you know, when I watched it in the 80s, I wouldn't be wouldn't have been familiar with Groucho Marx, but now I quite a big fan of the Marx Brothers films and seeing Hawkeye Pierce is essentially Groucho Marx without the moustache and the cigar. He is. I'm sure. uh, Yes, he is. And I'm sure there's at least one episode I can remember where he does put on the sort of the painted moustache and he waggles the cigar. So he's quite blatantly (laughs) doing doing Groucho. But you're absolutely right. It even has a similar tone of voice, and yeah, he, he delivers. Yeah, you know, it has that similar sort of, not quite monotone, but that very dry, direct way of delivering the line. Have you heard Peter Serafinovitz's uh, Alan Alder? Yes, <laughs> it's very good, isn't it? Yes, I think actually the real Alan Alder's very nice and not at all grumpy, but he does this sort of very kind of grumpy and reactionary version of Alan Alder, which is quite, which is quite good. And it seems like the real Alden, Alan Alder is the exact opposite of that, which is, yeah, which is, which is lovely to know. Alan Alda revealed himself to be a real Oscar grouch. I think it's ludicrous, preposterous. I mean, the whole thing is ridiculous, and it makes a mockery of the Oscars. And by the way, that pee-pee, that's a big mistake. I mean, that's a no-no. Did you? What sort of jokes did you enjoy? And I'm, I'm not saying spe- asking for specifics necessarily, but were there any particular types of jokes or gags or setups that, that you can remember appreciating more than others? I think I really liked the wordplay, not necessarily the puns, but but sort of citing a particular gag from this one, like pull up a chair. I'd rather stand. All right, stand on a chair. And I, it's it's I, and I think it's almost that kind of the very naturalistic exchange of it or you know within the context of the goons but yeah it, it's almost like a sort of groucho marx comeback where it's played straight so it's not quite a pun i'll mention it now the line uh my favorite line in the whole thing which is a pun and this is the line where that snagged me this is where i you know i i was in and i couldn't get out was the exchange you're a spy i'm not a spy i'm a shepherd a shepherd spy so that is just uh, uh, that is an awful groan worthy pun but the delivery they're fully committed they're not they're not delivering these as groan worthy puns they're co- committed to delivering these as comedy gold and they therefore they make it comedy gold so me me saying it in that fashion that I've just delivered it just makes it sound awful but as part of this the momentum they get going i think that's part of a lot of it as well just the huge momentum and energy behind it that is just cascading that's absolutely yeah Yeah, because it gets a huge round round of applause admit it you're a spy i'm not a spy i'm a shepherd ah shepherd spy (laughs) see i was never so much one for the puns as much Mm. and i was never one for the um which is for the goon show, you'd think, well, it's a bit of a problem then if you don't enjoy this kind of gag. But you know, the the kind of like the they mess with logic completely by, for example, I'll stand on your shoulders and then you stand on my shoulders and then pull me up onto your shoulders and then I'll yeah. pull you up onto my shoulders. You know, that kind of gag. Yeah, I like that. Yeah, I think it, they could sometimes go on a bit, those sort of scenarios, like um, like the what's, yeah, you, you mentioned before that the, having the, the the time written on a piece of paper that is always trotted out as being the classic scene uh and i do like it but it's it it does go on it does and it's the one that um it's fine <laughs> but it's the yeah. one they it's the one they trot out every time the goons is mentioned on some nostalgia show or list show or whatever it may be to in order to sort of um illustrate what goon humor is they'll play that what time is it Eccles sketch mm. and this, to me there's far far better sequences that they could use which would still resonate today what time is it Eccles <laughs> the kind of gag from this show that I really like 
and it kind of doesn't even really merit it doesn't even get a laugh it kind of it's just it's it's almost like an offhand gag well, it's not even a gag. I'll just give you the example. I wonder if it's before you before you say it. I wonder if it's the same one because I wrote down a gag that I really liked and it didn't get a laugh. So we'll see if we have the same one. Okay, well it's where Seagoon meets Bloodnock, and Seagoon's got this microfilm which he's found in a, a washed up boot, German army boot, and Bloodnock says, I'll, "I'll just put this microfilm under this powerful magnifying glass." It'll keep it flat while I put my glasses on, you see. Okay, so. <laughs> that is a good one. It's it's so subtle, that. And, and, and there's nothing worse than trying to analyse gags or analyse jokes. But to <laughs> me, and the way he delivers it, it was a real uh, chef's kiss at the moment. It's, you know, it kind of goes unnoticed. But to mm. me, that's the sort of uh, humour I love. I'll just mention that wasn't the one that I wrote down. The one that I wrote down was uh, where Seagoon says... they they. they they give Seagun a mission and he says, I'll do my best. And the reply is, we can't afford failures. <laughs> and that doesn't get a laugh from the audience at all. They don't pick up on it. But I like, the, again, I like the subtlety of that. Yes. <laughs> and he, and he, left, he left the yacht club with his head held high and his feet held higher. <laughs> yes. In that position, they threw him out. Um, there's a line that I always think of. I always, it's, it's possibly my favourite ever line in a, in a goon show. And it just implies desperation and it's the line from i think it's a show called the child harold reward which was in series eight series nine something like that and it's grit pipe thin and moriarty and they're full <coughs> they've gone from being like you know in series five uh quite upwardly mobile mm-hmm. men about town they've gone from from that sort of period to, to being basically scrounging on the street living in dustbins but there's a line where grit pipe's talking to moriarty and He's trying to say something, and Moriarty keeps sort of cutting in, a bit like us, or me with you. <laughs> Please, Moriarty, keep still. Do you want us both out of this suit? No. <laughs> Basically, makes me makes me laugh so much because you know. Plus, then you you also get the pronunciation of suit as well. There's a couple actually I wrote down uh, again, quite subtle things, but very Milligan. So there's a pair of boots wash up on the beach and they could be described as a pair of german army boots but it's spike milligan so they're a pair of uncooked german army boots and just his unnecessary his unnecessary his unnecessary adjectives that he throws in just to add that color and that extra little bit of absurdity and humor and also his use of adjectives as well which is breaking that down into formal english here um the line after that which is uh, Greenslade's, is like any quick-thinking Englishman, Seagoon rapidly tried them on. So you've even got comic timing in the narration. He didn't just try them on, he rapidly tried them on. <laughs> it's like, great boots! It's the, is, is it that it's that old, um, very nearly an armful thing with Hancock, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. If you say it's nearly an armful, it doesn't work as well as very nearly an armful. <laughs> exactly, yeah. It's just getting the, the wording exactly right. Uh, I listened to a bit of, um, just for comparison, because it's all very well saying how sort of groundbreaking and unlike anything else on the radio, The Goon Show was, because that's what I've been told. Um, but I actually haven't really listened to much or any other 50s radio comedy. So um, just for authenticity purposes, or at least an attempt at authenticity, I uh, listened to some of uh, Take It From Here from 1957, which I also found on YouTube. And um, I actually did laugh at some of it, but it's a lot more old-fashioned. It is very different. It's, uh, and it has June Whitfield in it, so it has that kind of modern element of somebody we know from fairly recent television. And there are some good jokes in it, but like the, it has a lot of those um, working-class London accents that sound like they're straight from Music Hall. Yeah, I mean, it's best known, well, not not even now, but I guess its legacy was the Glums. Aha. Uh-huh. I know the name. I get them mixed up with the Grimms, which is an entirely different thing. Right. The Glums was like a, um, engage, a young engaged couple who were living with the man's father, and the father's played by Jimmy Edwards. Uh-huh. Um, and it's, it's Dick Bentley, I think. Dick Bentley is the... Is is the the young man and June Whitfield is the young lady and 
they're engaged, but they never get married. He, she wants to, but he doesn't, if you know what I mean. He wants, he, he basically is trying to resist actually taking the plunge. And that's, that's the, that, the humor revolves around that. So it's kind of, right. you know, yeah. that's the, but the reason that that resonated was that in the, in the seventies, um, when Bruce Forsyth left the generation game, mm. he went and had a new show, a new variety show called i think bruce's big night or something like that my, my friend would be able to tell you but it, it was something like it was it was like a, a saturday night variety show which was a massive flop okay it right okay. really really died on its ass is that the one where he spent part of one episode just railing against the fact that it wasn't doing well he just had a rant i think he he was expecting the generation game to to die a death and then Larry Grayson. But anyway, but the, the point is that they, the, the Bruce's big night um, featured, they had like a regular weekly feature, which was the adventures of the glums. And it was, uh, it was them on TV basically. And the other, the other sort of, you know, the sketch Belham gateway to the South that was on. Um, oh yeah. Yeah. First seller's record. Um, that was written by Norden and Muir. And I think that it was possibly a sketch on Take It From Here first. I see. Okay. Yeah, it was good. It was, it, it was, uh, there was some good jokes in it. Um, the, the one, the part one I listened to was like the old guy gets stuck in a bath. It's the old toe up a bath at uh, the, the um, plug, not the plug, the tap thing, which is a bit, a bit played out, probably a bit played out in, even in 1957. But when June, June Whitfield's character comes in, uh, we discover that in order to in order to maintain his modesty, they emptied lots of um, gravy granules into the bath, which I liked the image of rather. <laughs> and that is, yeah, so there was some there's, you know, funny, again, use of radio humour, but but just the delivery is quite music hall. I yeah. Guess. And I think I, 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 I suppose the only major sort of uh, rival to the goons in terms of radio at that time would have been Hancock. And try as I might, I've never really, I love Stepped On so much, obviously, was Golden Simpson after Hancock, but I never really warmed yeah. to Hancock. I'm the other way around. I, I, on RetroTube, that's my podcast, we did, um, uh, we did, we covered Hancock, and yeah, neither Heather nor I really, we just find um, Stepped On sound a bit depressing. Really. <laughs> that's saying something from people who enjoy Hancock. All right. Okay. So, so when I when I finally get my step to some podcast off the ground, I won't be asking you then. I mean, we could say I could certainly come on a rail about it. <laughs> Just basically slag <laughs> off uh, Wilfred Bramble. <laughs> um, I mean, I like a hard day's night. Watch out for your brisket. This seem all right to me. Ah, uh, sure. That's what I want you to think. All coppers are villains. Would you two like a cup of tea? See. Sly villain. Yes. Goons' Goon's um, connection, of course, being uh, Richard Lester. Of course, yes. Which was partly how he got the gig, I think, in terms of direction, because John Lennon knew of him because of the the Goons' connection. I think so. I think it was directly from Running, Jumping, Standing Still film. I think it it, it came from that. So that that worked out for everyone. Did you, like me, when you listened to goons tapes whatever did you um <clears throat> always fast forward through the musical numbers yes <laughs> every time i've never i wrote down i always skip the music and i did so again i have never sat all the way through either a max Geldray or a ray ellington performance it really because i guess they were still considered light entertainment so it couldn't be a pure comedy show they had to have the musical numbers but they didn't go for the temperance seven or something that would fit the tone or who's the other one that wasn't the temperance the one that had bruce lacy in i can't remember the name of that group oh the alberts yeah it could be they could have gone for the alberts or or someone that fit the mood but they just had to go for a crooner and a harmonica player and it's just yeah a bit a bit stultifying isn't it (laughs) yeah you weren't supposed to fast forward through those but i always did and occasionally that that rope in Ellington or Galdray to say a few lines. Yes, it was always nice to hear them. Yeah, but they tended to be sort of stilted. Um, yes. And in some cases, racist. Yes, we might have to um, address that another time because that's probably a different conversation is is the use of sort of 50s humour 
and how well also how badly it stands up because it doesn't stand up well but i also think it doesn't stand up super super badly and i think there's a distinction as well between humor that we wouldn't do now for various reasons and humor that's actively offensive and i think that can be two different things so you get the bernard manning humor or recently on twitter somebody posted a video uh, from the 90s of the Michael Barrymore show and him doing a whole routine with the children's choir about Chinese people, which is utterly jaw-dropping. Mm. I don't recommend people look it out, but certainly if people want to be shocked and horrified, it's a thing. You saw it as well. <laughs> and so there's nothing that there's nothing that I've heard in The Goon Show that even approaches that. Don't you think that, that there's real danger of him ruining his reputation? <laughs> <laughs> however will he come back from it but yeah i think i think it is stuff you wouldn't do now but it's not malicious and it's not particularly um i think it, it was fine for the time so again they sort of the disclaimers you get on all those really old disney animations where they say it it, it it's not acceptable now and it wasn't really acceptable at the time either but it just happened it, it's not most of it, and I can't, yeah, I haven't listened to it. I'm sure there are examples in some of the goon shows that you might just, <laughs> there'll be a sharp, sharp intake of breath, but it is just uh, largely white actors doing Indian accents or Jamaican accents or that kind of thing. So it's it's nothing you won't have heard, in, nothing you won't have come across in a Monty Python episode or that kind of thing. No, that's it. One other thing I'll mention, just it's a line that I've always found really curious, is is where they mention revivals of Moroccan roll. So apart from the fact that I like the pun Moroccan roll, this is 1958. They were having rivals, revivals of rock and roll was a thing in 1958. <laughs> That's always baffled me. Yeah, by um, that point, skiffle was all the rage. Yeah. Uh, although Jailhouse Rock was, was number one the week before the show went out. Right. So that's still rock and roll, isn't it? I think so. And like rock and roll would have been two, three years earlier at the most. And I would have said it was still ongoing. So, yeah, it just it it feels quite forward thinking that like there would be such a thing as a revival of rock. It was like it's been made in the 70s. It's like <laughs> with Shawadi Wadi and things like that. Revivals of rock and roll. Um, so, yes, this is my favourite of the theme tunes. So it has three theme tunes. Um and this one is, the, oddly, it's a German marching song they use called, uh, if I can pronounce this correctly, Alter Kameraden. Now, does that, is that, does that, I think that translates as Old Comrades March. I think so, yes. That's right, Old Comrades March. Now you mention it, that's what they normally refer to it as, isn't it? Yeah. But this is your favourite, is it? Yeah. Um, so the other two, Ding Dong, The Witch is Dead from uh, Wizard of Oz and uh, Crazy Rhythm by Irving Caesar, Joseph Meyer and Roger Wolfe Kahn from a film also, which I forgot to make a note of, but it's that's also from a film. Laura, was it? I don't, was it Laura? It could have been Laura. I forget. Because actually thinking about it, there's actually four themes because, um, right, there's Ding Dong, The Witch is Dead. There's Old Comrades March. Mm. There's there's Crazy Rhythm, which if it's the one I th was sort of C Series 7 into Series 8. Yeah. And then before that, there was there was another one, which I don't know what it's called. Is that the one that's... Yes, that's the one. It's a bit more sort of showbiz kind of light entertainment. Yeah, I like that one too. It's got gusto. <laughs> That's it, real quite punchy. Yeah, so there was that one as well. And, uh, I said Laura because possibly that one, that piece of music is called Laura. I don't oh, know. Okay. I, 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 I need to look into that. Um, mm. But um, maybe, yeah, maybe next time if, if, if we speak again about the goons, we, you know, I'll have, uh, I'll have done my homework by then. <laughs> but yes, the one in this episode is the old Comrade, Comrade March, which is a 19th century piece of German uh, folk music, marching music by a guy called Karl Tika, Tika, possibly. And it's got a good melody. It's got gusto. It feels odd even in the 50s 
in a comedy show so close to the war to be using a German military march to go, right, we can have a great fun comedy show now. Here's a German military march. But I also can't help thinking that even possibly subconsciously, this is where the Monty Python theme tune came from, because that's an American marching song. Sousa, yeah. Yeah, the Liberty Bell, uh, which has a very similar da, da, da kind of the yeah rhythm to, isn't it? Absolutely. And this is possibly why it's my favourite because it just it has that kind of Monty Python verve. And I think also military marching songs are so sort of stuffy that they sound ridiculous, and particularly in that kind of Monty Python goon show context of you really puncturing that kind of military marching pomposity of these. Da, sort of pumped up pieces of music where the other theme tunes they used um, were a lot more sort of jazzy and cool and kind of thing so it was a bit more swing and a bit more yeah kind of thing Blood Knock had his his own theme yes of course yeah which is a similar sort of thing yes Um, which as, as the show went on you'd hear the theme and then there'd be like a series of explosions and (laughs) <laughs> implications that he's shat his pants basically <laughs> he's had a few curries yes this has um been a, a really enjoyable conversation uh adam i've really 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 enjoyed it and thank you so much for, for, for joining me so <clears throat> where can people um seek you out well i do a podcast called retrotube it's me and my friend heather uh, and we talk about old TV from the 60s through to the 80s, and we take it in turn to introduce each other to one of our uh, either favourite shows or just a show that we grew up with. And Heather is very into 60s glossy spy shows that have the budget of two feature films, whereas I like the 70s, 80s hauntological, film, uh, hauntological TV shows that are held together with sellotape and cost £25 to make and star ghosts. Um so we take it in turns each episode to talk about one of each other's shows. Uh, we're also on Twitter, uh, retro underscore tube. Okay, uh, so. can I and, and and actually just to to butt in there, um, I've mm. listened to a number of your of the retro tube uh, episodes, and there's some really good stuff. The discussion of the prisoner was was a highlight for me. Um, oh, thank you. Which uh, I know Heather really, really loves, and I think um, yes. you're slightly uh, less enamoured. I was a bit unsure about, yes. Yeah. Um, there's um, discussion about Magical Mystery Tour. Um, and also, um, although my experience is limited thus far, you discuss my favourite Doctor Who story, which is The Time Meddler. Yes. We're going to do more Doctor Whos, but that's the first one we've covered. Well, listen, Adam, it's been great. Thank you very much. You're welcome. No, thank you very much for inviting me on. And uh, thank you for, for listening. And um, please like and uh, subscribe in all the usual places. Uh, we'll be on Twitter on at Goon Show Pod. Um, Facebook page is in the offing, so watch the space. And um, tune in again next time. <laughs>